This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm chatting to Sir John Hegarty, founder of BBH Advertising Agency and The Garage Soho. John started out in the world of advertising in the 60s, moving up the ranks quickly and helping to set up agencies such as TBWA and the infamous Saatchi and Saatchi. In the mid-80s, John started to become famous for his groundbreaking work, securing clients such as Audi and Levi's within months. John was the first ever person to be knighted for his services to the advertising and creative industries, and his agency, BBH, won Agency of the Year more than six times. We had the most wonderful chat at his new venture, The Garage Soho, which helps new ideas and entrepreneurs with mentorship and investment. It was a conversation that just completely inspired me, giving me so much knowledge and wisdom and courage when it comes to brand, looking for the creative twists in everything and being a proud enthusiast of life. I walked away thinking, how can I be more John? Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, John. I feel so lucky to be sitting with you today in your brilliantly disruptive garage in Soho. You're our first night that we've had on this podcast. We've had a lord, lots of OBEs, CBEs, MBEs, but never a sir before. Oh. So it's such an honour to be chatting with you today. <laughs> well, you, I, I better make sure I don't let the side down, do I? Well, I definitely know you're not. You're a complete creative legend, an utter genius, a dear friend. And so I cannot wait to talk to you today about your incredible story. We met many years ago now, actually, through the wonderful Tom Teichman, who I've just recently interviewed for the podcast. And since then... You've been so generous with your time, so funny through your messages, and I just know that the small business community are going to fall in love with you, if they haven't already, because I do every time we meet. Oh, so wonderful. welcome to well, the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, and I hope I, I, uh, we, we give some value for our time. That's, <laughs> that's what we need to do, don't we? Yeah. We do. Let's try. <clears throat> so first of all, I'd love to start with telling your story. Mm-hmm. You've been working in advertising for over 50 years now, which is hugely impressive. Your creative wisdom will be unparalleled. But I'd love to start from the very beginning. You were born in 1944, as you say, when the bombs were dropping towards the end of World War II. And you had a creative mother who encouraged you. Was this where your passion for creativity began? Were you a creative child? I don't think I was, actually. I was in a household that was very positive about education. It was a working class background, but there was... A real view that you weren't just going to, you know, leave school at 16 and then get some 
menial job that you know further education was considered something that you were almost certainly going to do and were encouraged to go and do it so from that point of view I had a, a wonderful upbringing my father who didn't say much to me that was very sensible the only <laughs> thing he did say to me was uh, uh, an education is the best thing I can give you because it can't be taken off you mm. and I thought that was a very wise thing he once also said to me he was reading the Daily Express which he thought was a very sort of moderate liberal newspaper, not realising it was a completely right-wing piece of rubbish. And he lowered it, and I can remember this to this, to this day, and he lowered it and he looked at me and he said, never trust a man who wears white shoes. And then went back to reading his newspaper. And it, <laughs> and it kind of stuck in, what on earth is he on about? But I, I sort of, you know, tangential comment, but latterly I kind of realised he obviously was someone not very trustworthy who wears white shoes. Mind you, this is the day before, days before we all walk, walk around with trainers, so it wouldn't apply today. And your mother and father, what did they do? Well, my father was, um, he was from Ireland. They were dairy farmers. I think my father had a quite unhappy childhood. He came from a relatively well-off background. He was the youngest of seven by a long way. And... If you weren't going to inherit the farm, the tradition was you went to uh, university and studied to be a veterinary surgeon. He was mad about motor cars and mechanics and could take a car to pieces and put it back together again. I've got a feeling I didn't really talk to him about it because he wasn't the sort of man that you talked to, which is a great tragedy. But my mother sort of implied this, that he therefore sort of fell out with the family and came to England and then did what you know he could do, which was he understood farming and he became he worked for Hendon Borough Council as a park keeper. So that was my father. And so your mother was and my more mother around? was she worked for Hendon Borough Council and she was very much a, an office worker, very kind of open and um, adventurous and gregarious and was was just a, a truly wonderful person. And your education, so you went through I went to, school. yes, I, I, primary school, then to grammar school, art foundation at Hornsey. And then for, whilst I was at Hornsey Art School, it was suggested that I was possibly not going to be the next Picasso, but that I loved ideas and that I should perhaps go and study graphic design. So I then went from... And was that where you you think you you found your sort of passion and purpose? You, I did. I know yeah. you had some wonderful teachers that encouraged you. Yeah, they saw something in you. Well, I, I was very lucky, and I had three brilliant, brilliant teachers. The first one was uh, a man called Con O'Halpin, who was who taught me history, who I still see every year. I see Con, <laughs> and we have dinner together, and he. He was the most brilliant, brilliant history teacher, and he walked into our class, and I can always remember this, and he said to us, I'm here to teach, you know, 11-year-olds weren't interested in history, and I'm here to teach you history, you know, boredom, boredom descent on class, <laughs> like that. And he said, history isn't about the past, it's about the future, and I'm now going to tell you about the future through history. And, of course, we all kind of went, what? Wow. This is pretty cool. So he was my first great teacher. And then when I went to art school, I, I was taught by the most wonderful, wonderful man called Peter Green. Peter was the one who looked at me and said, John, you're not going to be the next Picasso, but you're, you love ideas. You know, you love ideas. I think you should go and study graphic design. But he said you should do it at 
the London College of Printing, as it was then called. It's now called the London College of Communication. And so my love of ideas and applying those ideas, uh, I went to um, study graphic design. Often it's so hard for young people today to know what they want to pursue in life. There's so many now what feels like options available. What advice would you give to them, reflecting on that story, to help them find their passion so that they might experience what feels like a bit of a light bulb moment for you? You know, it, it feels like that was a bit of a turning point in your life. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, this is always very difficult because in, in some instances, you've got to get lucky. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's kind of, you know, do you stumble across something you really want to do? I think the important thing is to be as open as you possibly can at a fairly young age to all kinds of things. And that's what's brilliant about art school, because what it does is it takes you in and it gives you what they call a foundation year. And in that foundation year, you kind of do everything. You then go, oh, actually, I think I'd love to do fashion or I'd love to do sculpture or I'd love to do theatre design or I'd love to do bookbinding or whatever it might be. So that's the brilliant thing about art school. But taking that experience, because not everybody wants to go to art school, is to be engaged with as many things as you possibly can be. And through that, you'll, you'll connect with something that really you really enjoy. And, and whatever you do in life, you know, I've always said, you know, don't follow the money, follow the opportunity. You, 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 there's a good chance you're going to be doing it for a long time. So enjoy it. Mm. You know, enjoy what you're going to do. And, and then it won't be like working. It'll be like living. I think going to art school, having that experience and being able to talk with people about ideas led me to then going to study graphic design. And I love the, the concept of what we call a blank page. Oh, what are we going to do? This to me was exciting. Yeah. You know, a lot of people are fearful of a blank page. You know, yeah. people talk about the fear of a yes. blank page. Whereas I, for me, it was like, wow, what can we do? What can we put in here? Anything you like. When you left college looking for jobs, you went into the advertising world. You were given these two job offers, which became sort of a sliding doors moment in your life. Could you tell us that story? Well, it was. Well, first of all, I was at design school. So yes. I was at design school and, you know, I was studying graphic design. But then I met the wonderful John Gillard. John Gillard was a brilliant, brilliant teacher. And John was the one who said to me, you know, you love ideas, John. You should look at the great work coming out of New York at the time by agencies like Dordain Birnbach and the great Volkswagen campaign they were doing and Avis and all those wonderful campaigns. And he showed me all this work. And, and that was my light bulb moment. Because I suddenly looked at all this brilliant work coming out of New York that was full of ideas, but it was smart, it was intelligent, it was witty, but also it was inclusive. It included, it didn't exclude. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And so he encouraged me to follow that, create a portfolio, and then take that out into the advertising world, which I did. And I got two job offers, one from um, an agency called Young and Rubicum, which actually still exists, and another one from an agency called Benton and Bowles. They no longer exist. The Young and Rubicum job was offering me twice as much as the B&B, &B, the Benton and Bowles job. And uh, I'd said to a friend of mine who was sort of a year ahead of me in the industry, you know, look, I've got this dilemma, what should I do? And it was he who said to me, well, you know, I would go to the Benton and Bowles job, even though it's going to pay you half. But actually, they've just got this great 
creative director who's come over from New York, and I think you'll learn a lot from working with him. So I took that job at half the salary. But the point about that was, within two weeks of me being there, the creative director walks into my cubicle, didn't have an office, cubicle, you know, <laughs> or space, or space, whatever you want to yeah. call it. You know, it's it very was cool these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Desk and a chair. And said to me, I've found a writer for you to work with. And I said, oh, yeah, great, what's his name? And he went, Charles Saatchi. And I thought, oh, God, Charles Saatchi. He's obviously Italian, lives at home with mum and can't spell. Just my luck, and he's a writer I'm working with. Well, I was, I was right on two fronts. He did live at home with mum, and he wasn't very good at spelling. And, of course, he wasn't Italian, but he was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And it was a, it was a wonderful experience. And, and in a way, it goes back to that point about don't follow the money, follow the opportunity. And especially if you're involved in a creative career, it's a very, very precarious profession. You know, you've got to be very lucky to sustain a creative career. There are things you can do to sustain it, but it's not like being a doctor or being a lawyer or being, you know, where you do it and, you know, you go on doing it. And it can, you, can, you can fall out of fashion in the, yeah. in, in the creative career and suddenly you haven't got a career anymore. Making sure that you're grounding your career in great experiences is fundamentally important. I think, again, this is a great lesson to learn from. So often in life, we, we follow our head, we follow the sensible option, we follow the money, as you said, but we should be much more intuitive following that gut or the dream or, as you said, the opportunity rather than the paycheck. So after meeting Charles Saatchi, he asked you to help him set up an advertising agency. So... This was 1967, and it became the infamous Saatchi and Saatchi. What was that time of your life like and the world of advertising? Because, you know, we've got this madman sort of picture <laughs> in our heads and, you know, where, where advertising was at some point in time. Can you just tell me about this snippet of your life? For me, it was a wonderful period. I mean, we were the first generation that I actually wanted to be in advertising. I mean, up to that point, by and large, on the creative side, the people in advertising were kind of writers who were on their way to writing a novel, or they were graphic designers who really wanted to be artists and painters, and they had to do a bit of art direction on the side to make some money. We were the first generation, because we had seen this great work coming out of New York, that actually wanted to be in it, that, that said if done correctly, if treated in the right way, it could be very exciting, it could be involving, entertaining, engaging, witty, smart, and all the things that I've said about it. So we wanted to be in this industry, but so we were at that cusp of change. Mm -hmm. You know, advertising really didn't get exciting until the 70s, unlike the 60s for music and fashion, because music and fashion was driven by young people. So the Beatles come along, yep. they write their own music, they're in control. Because advertising was really employed by corporations. Corporations are about 10 years behind where the general public are because they're slow and inept and stupid and, <laughs> you know, and all the things we know about. So they control the purse strings. So it took them some time to kind of catch up with what was going on. So really, you know, we started Saatchi and Saatchi in 1970. And that was kind of the beginning of a decade of change for the advertising industry. We, 
we were kind of like, there were, there were two great agencies at that moment in time. There was uh, an agency called Colin Dickinson Pierce, who were just brilliant, absolutely brilliant, did Heineken, Refreshes the Parts, Other Beards, kind of Reach, did wonderful, wonderful work. And there, there was us, Saatchi and Saatchi. And it was often said as that, that you know, um, Collets were the Beatles and we were the Rolling Stones. We were a bit more rebellious and we didn't give a shit and kind of like that. And uh, so we felt at that moment we were changing the world. We'd seen the future, we'd understood what was happening, and we were there to kind of convince these large organisations that they had to get with a programme, otherwise they wouldn't succeed. So you, you, it was a very exciting time to be around. And isn't there, correct me if I'm wrong, the story about the, is it the key man insurance? Go on. No. There's a story in my book. Well, let me tell you the story that I think you might be. First of all, working with Charlie was brilliant. I mean, he was a genius in many, many ways. Wonderfully mad in other ways, but, you know, who isn't? You know, the most interesting people are. And um, he was incredibly good at PR. When you're a young company, you're trying to get out there and trying to get noticed and get into the press and get headlines and stuff like that. And this was an occasion, it was about 1971, something like that, 72. And we hadn't had any stories to sort of push out to the press. We hadn't won any new business. We weren't about to release a campaign and, and, and everybody was scratching their heads about, we've got to get into the press, what have we got to do? And Charlie had this brilliant idea to underline our creativity because we were very much a creative agency. I'm going to insure our yeah. creative department for that a was... million pounds. Now, you know, that's, we're talking 1971, 72, so it's a lot of money. If anybody wants to poach them, it's going to be a, a, like a football transfer fee. You have to pay a football transfer fee. So he had this idea. He sets it up. He gets an insurance company that he knew somebody there to say, yes, we've insured them. And he puts this story out. And we have a photograph of us all as like a football team on a park bench in Golden Square in Soho, where the offices was. And he got that story on the back page of the Sunday Times Business News. Total fabrication. <laughs> but he got it. It was brilliant. It? And, it, and it did two things. One, it got us into the press. It underlined our creativity uh, and made us much more famous. And then in 1982, you went on to found BBH, formed from the three founders' names, Bartle, Bogle and Hegarty, where you were huge success basically from the start, securing clients such as Audi and Levi's within the first six months. And I can't wait to go on to talk to you about the work of these campaigns with these iconic clients. But first, I'd love to hear more about the early days of founding BBH. You started the business with Nigel Bart. Um, Bogle and John Bartle. <laughs> I know. Who... Somebody once described it like sounding something like falling down the stairs and finding Hegarty at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Who you'd worked with before. I'd love how you describe your partnership as this holy trinity. Could you tell me more about that? Well, yeah. We uh, So just to fill in. So in 1973, I decided that, you know, it was great. Saatchi and Saatchi were brilliant. They were going places. They were going to do wonderful things. But it was always going to be Charlie's agency. And quite rightly so, too. He, you know, even though I was a partner, you know, I was very much a junior partner, it was his agency. And I had this chance to go and set up the London office of a European agency called TBWA. And so I went off and did that. And that's where I met John Bartle and Nigel Bogle. We were brought together to, to run this agency, which we've 
did, and it became Campaign Magazine, our magazine's first ever agency of the year. And we, you know, through lots of hard work, we struggled and made it grow. We decided in 82, 81, 82, to set up our own agency because we thought we could do it better than it was being done at TBWA. Again, we were still part of a larger group. But it was very important that we recognised and respected each of the talents that went into structuring the agency. So John Bartle was a planner, Nigel was a brilliant account manager, and I was on the creative side. And the success came out of our complete respect for each other. We could all comment on what the other one did, but in the end, if a decision had to be made about a planning idea, it would be John that would do that. Mm -hmm. If a decision had to be made about how we manage a piece of business, Nigel would do that. And if a decision had to be made finally about a piece of creative work, I would do that. And we were, in a way, it was like a great band. Yeah. You know, there was a lead singer, yep. lead guitarist, somebody on drums. We weren't all trying to be lead singers. We respected what each other did. And you can see how partnerships, and you can fact see how bands collapse because somebody thinks they're more important than the other, the other people. But it was important that we respected each other. Uh, and, and it wasn't about sort of, you know, sitting in a room and having happy, clappy meetings and, uh, you know, singing Kumbaya. We, we, we had huge disagreements, huge kind of discussions about things. But in the end, we ended the meeting with kind of, well, your job is creative, your job is planning, yep. your job is managing. And it's such a great lesson. Or it's such an important lesson for anybody starting something or going into business with somebody. You've got to go into business with people you respect, uh, and you can trust, fundamentally important, but also that respect what you do and you respect what they do and they're not going to try and do your job. I think it's great advice, certainly for small businesses listening. Often we're told that, you know, you're a sole founder or you're a partnership. But, you know, this sort of three founder thing is not really spoken about. I recently spoke to Richard Reed, founder of Innocent, and he started with his two best friends from university as an excuse basically to hang out together. But they were a very strong trio. And at Holly & Co, there's three of us founders, myself, my sister who founded Not on High Street with me, and my adopted sister, Gabby, who worked at Not on the High Street as well. We're best friends, we're sisters, we're family. I completely trust them, which I think is just this fundamental thing that really you're also talking about. You know, at the bottom line, you can disagree, you can absolutely oppose someone else's opinion, but the trust is there that, you know, you're going to fall back and they're going to catch you um, in those decisions. Actually, it's a bit nerdy, but we Heard you use the word, I'm going to try and say it because I always fail on really important <laughs> words, triumvirate. Triumvirate, that's it, the whole yes. trinity. <laughs> to describe the trinity, and yeah. then looking at this ancient term, it describes three men holding power. So I've created a female version of it, mm -hmm. and I'm going to now try and say that terribly as well. Triumphemate. Which well, that's I good. I think that's it, better actually. That, I like that yeah. triumph feminine. I like that. There we that's are. Good. So I think this word doesn't exist. Mm. So I'm putting it out there into good. the universe now. Three strong women together. Well, I think the other thing I want to say about that as well, there is a practical reason why it's important. I had a, I won't say who it was, but some friends in business and they had a partnership and they were very successful, had huge regard for each other. But there came constant moments when they couldn't move forward because they couldn't agree on something. Mm -hmm. And in the end, they said the only solution to this is we've got to bring in a third partner mm. 
because it's not that we don't like each other, we don't trust each other, but we can't agree. Yeah. And so they had to bring in a third Someone partner to, call it in a to way say, or, yeah. right, this is it. So it's a vote, two against one, that's it. Or it's yeah. three, that's fine. Very so there's right. not only a, a, a kind of an importance, an emotional importance to it, a, a relevance to it about respect, but also a practical one. Mm. You know, you think often partnerships completely collapse because the two partners can't agree on anything mm. Mm. and you stagnate. So if I may, I'd love to ask about your most famous ad campaigns, starting with Levi's. You were asked to pitch to them six months into founding the company. And at that time, Levi's was a completely different brand from what it is today. I couldn't quite believe it when I read the story. But Levi's back then, in the mid 80s, was seen as this unfashionable, fuddy-duddy brand that only the uncle dads would wear, and BBH completely turned this around. I'd love to hear the story of pitching to Levi's and how you revived such an iconic brand. Well, it was, it was a very interesting time. So this is like 1982. Levi's, uh, through the 70s, had been hugely successful. So jeans were growing and growing and growing. Levi's were the original, and they were you know, riding this incredible wave of success. Along comes punk. And punk blows fashion apart. Of course, punk originally was quite a small group of people, but then it grew up. And so by 1982, we were in this period of which we call the post-punk phenomena, where fashion was kind of like whatever you wanted. There was no fashion look. There was no overall style. Mm -hmm. um, you literally followed whatever your band was. So you might be a Dexys Midnight Runner fan and you might wear sort of overalls or you might be a culture club and go around in skirts. The kind of mass fashion look had, had, had been blown apart. Yeah. Now, that's a problem if you're a mass fashion brand. How does Levi's cope with this? Because it's used to making, you know, half a million pairs of jeans and selling them. And so they came to us and they said, look, we, we don't understand youth anymore. Um, and every time we like something, we probably think it's wrong. So the brief to you is to create some work that reconnects with this audience that we will hate. I mean, that literally was their brief. Oh if we like it, it'll yes. be wrong. So if yes. we really hate it, it'll be good. Now, we took this brief and we walked away and we thought, this is madness. This is complete bloody anarchy. I mean, so I'm, I'm going to present them an idea and say, now, you're really going to hate this, so therefore it's very good, or you're really going to loathe this, which makes it absolutely amazing. And we said, this is completely stupid. You can't. This is daft. And we said to them, you know, and this is a great lesson now, when a brand is going wrong or when anything's going wrong, what you do is you go back to the roots of why it existed. Why did this brand exist? What did it really do? Why was it very good? Why did people adopt it? And you go back to the roots of the brand and then you find a way of re-expressing that, that, those values in today's language. And that's what we said to them. Oh, the other thing you have to remember too, America at that time was seen like as a joke. You know, Ronald really? Reagan, Mickey yes. Mouse, oh, for God's sake, no great music coming out. So the other thing they said to us, as well as whatever you do, we need to hate it. We need to hate it. Don't mention America. <laughs> go, but wait, it's on the back of the jeans, you know, made in the USA. And, and so he said, this is just ridiculous. And so he said, this is completely wrong. So we did this thing. We said, go back to your roots. Go back to what made you great. Be proud of who you are, but express it in terms that are relevant to today. So we went in, we pitched, and we, we, we 
did what I thought was a fantastic pitch, told them the absolute truth, that they had to find a way of re-expressing their values. They were American, stopped trying to hide it, but expressed it in a way which was relevant today. And of course, the one thing that jeans always had is that they were hard-wearing. One of the reasons you like them is that you could put them on, throw them off, you could wash them every day, you could wash them every month, you could wash them every year if you wanted to. They were hard-wearing. And so what we did is we did a campaign around how tough the jeans are, how hard they are to make and the effort they go and the amount of work they put in to making a great pair of jeans. And we created a fabulous campaign around that and suddenly Levi started coming back. But the lesson in that is don't deny who you are, go back to the roots of what you are, you were the original, and express it in a way which captures people's imagination, relates to today, and, you know, success grows out of that. We could talk about Brexit on the same front on that basis, actually, <laughs> about Europe. <laughs> Why are we in the EU? I'll do this now. Do it. We're in the EU. The EU was formed because after two disastrous world wars, Europe said never again. This must never, ever happen again. So let's set up a, a way of trading with each other that means that we're so embedded that we will never go to war again. And do you know what? Since they did that, this has been the most peaceful time in Europe, the longest period of peace in the history of Europe, amongst those nations who signed up, has occurred. So a phenomenal success. So that's why the EU exists. It's not just about flogging a bit, few more cars or trading a bit of toothpaste or, you know, whatever it might be. It's about peace. And you know what comes with peace? Prosperity. Mm. That's why we're in the EU. And that's why we must do everything we can to preserve it. Not for me, I'm done, but for anybody under the age of 40. Remember that. That's what we should be talking about. Peace and prosperity. That's the reason why. Are you listening to this incredible journey, thinking, I wish I could do that, but don't quite know where to start? Then I wrote a book for you. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is the ultimate small business Bible, providing you with the guidance, support and insights I wish I'd had 20 years ago at the start of building my business journey with Not On The High Street. Think of me as your virtual mentor, guiding you along your journey as if I was sitting right next to you, holding your hand, recounting my own fears and failures, lessons to help you succeed on your path. Short bite-sized micro chapters filled with colour, creativity, oh, and its own product range. It really is a business book like no other. Do What You Love, Love What You Do is out now. Head to holly.co slash book to buy your signed copy today. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. The laundrette ad has now become, you know, the most iconic and sexy advert of all time. It in turn made Levi's this famous, cool commercial brand again. So you launched the career of Nick Kamen, the model in the advert, the song became number one, the most astounding increase in sales of boxer shorts ever, like 800%. And everyone was wearing Y-fronts, is that true, That's before true, then? Yeah. So, you know, suddenly you, you had this profound effect. And the power of advertising, this sort of societal shift, 
left in looking at advertising. Was that where you started to see this this power of advertising? Do you think that in the UK, is this really where you were like, uh-huh, we're, we're doing it now. This is, this is exciting. You know, when you're advertising a brand, when you're dealing with a company, what you're trying to do is you're trying to make that brand a part of culture. In other words, you're trying to make it even more important than it is. So if I say to you, Marmite, now Marmite is a bloody yeast spread, who gives a shit? But actually what they've brilliantly done with their campaign is it's about love or hate. And they've gone back to a truth of the brand, again, that word truth, and they've said some people love it, some people hate it. Why don't we advertise it in that way? And what they've done is they've created a phenomenon around this brand called well, you're a bit Marmite. So it's become a part of culture. And that's what you're trying to do with your advertising. Whatever you're doing, if you're writing a book, making a movie, you know, painting a picture, you're trying to make that piece of creativity a major part of culture. You know, Game of Thrones, you know, major part mm. of culture now. And that's what we managed to do with Levi's at that moment in time. And it really was a seminal moment when it really crashed through and became a part of the world we talked about, not just in advertising, yes. but in just... In daily life. In daily life. And again, it was going back to the heart of the brand. But the brief there was to relaunch... But, but the original campaign was just Levi's. And this was the relaunch of the 501. So they wanted to relaunch this product, the 501. Interestingly, when they researched the product amongst kids, they didn't particularly like it. It was button fly. Well, that's a bit... You know, zips are much more interesting or much more convenient. The actual silhouette, as they call it, which is the look of the gene, was not quite the look that people were into at that moment in time. So it had quite a bit going against it. But again, I said to them, look, you know, I think what the way to launch this, the way to talk about this is to find a moment in time, a seminal moment when genes were a part of youth culture, when it was part of rebellion, when it was a part of this world that was changing and the music was changing, attitudes were changing and the clothes you were wearing were changing. And I said, if we can capture that, if we can capture that moment of which you were a fundamental part of, I think we'll create success. And so we wrote Laundrette. And of course, the thing about Laundrette was based again on a product demonstration. Guy goes in, he wants to wear, wash his 501s because they're a bit stiff when you first buy them. He wants them the way he wants them. And uh, so he, he washes them in the laundrette. He's only got one pair of jeans, so he's not wealthy. I can't send one pair to the laundry and wear another pair. So it's got a little, little yes. undertones in it. Yes. And the idea was it's a catwalk. Yeah. So he walks into a laundrette. You've got these people lined up. He walks in, looks around, takes his sunglasses off takes his T-shirt off, throws in the machine, throws in his, his um, uh, stones because he wants to stone wash them and strips down to his boxer shorts. And it's basically a fashion parade, but with attitude. And, and then the undertone in it. And then, of course, we you know, heard it through the grapevine. You know, again, that idea of yes. I've heard this through the grapevine. We gave the music more meaning. Oh, I see. Maybe that's what Marvin Gaye was singing about. I heard it through the grapevine. Bang. And so we elevated the status of the music. We elevated the status of the genes. And the story about boxer shorts, this is the funny one about the boxer shorts, because in the original script, I had him in a pair of wife fronts. And when you get a script, it has to be passed by various authorities yes. to make sure it's legal, decent, honest and truthful. Anyway, they came back and said, very sorry, this is indecent. We can't approve this. 
we were backwards and forwards, back, and this is nonsense. They're just like a pair of speedos, you know, always going. You know. <laughs> anyway, they came back and they said, well, we've been thinking about it. And they said to us, if you put him into a pair of boxer shorts, that will be okay. And we all went, boxer shorts? That was that dodgy American <laughs> underwear they used to wear in the 40s. Oh, my goodness, but we went, I can't believe this. We went, oh, God, well, if this gets the script through, then fine. And so... Wow. into boxer shorts he went and of course as you quite rightly say the sales exploded <laughs> and uh, calvin klein became a household name and you know he's never written to me once and said dear john Thanks thank for you that. for doing that and here's a here's a, a free pair of boxer shorts never <laughs> not one not one letter have i had from calvin klein but anyway, Hi. so there are oh. this, you know, regulatory authority becomes a fashion determinator. I'd love to run through um, yeah, just another iconic advert before I pick your brains on other things. You created the infamous Audi's legendary, and again, I'm going to try and say something I hope I don't mix, <laughs> m m mess up, Vorsprung Dusch Technik catchphrase. No, oh, oh, go on, oh, oh, help me. Vorsprung durch Technik. Thank you. The memorable Lynx Effect campaign yep. and the genius Flat Eric, which again ended up being this phenomenon and the song was number one for weeks. It's your genius of being utterly different. But my favourite advert has been the Levi's advert, The Black Sheep. It's everything I believe in and has become such part of your identity and the BBH culture. Your logo at BBH was a black sheep. Would I be able to hear the story of this advert and why it became so integral to your business? Well, yeah, the, uh, the ad you're talking about was a poster we did for Levi's. When we first won the business back in 1982, they sort of went, oh, gosh, you know, you've got the business, fantastic, very exciting. By the way, we've got all these posters that we bought and we've got to create an ad for black denim. We're going to launch black denim. And we said, oh, fantastic. So I went away and I, I kind of thought, right, OK, black denim. bit unusual. Denim, as we know, is blue. blue. This is black yep. denim. Blah, blah. So I did this poster, and you can imagine it. You can't see it, but you can imagine it. It's all these white sheep going in one direction, and in the middle, a black sheep going in the opposite direction. And it just says, Black Levi's, when the world zigs, you should zag. And what was, <laughs> what was funny about it was that, so this is the very first piece of creative work we're doing for Levi's. So I present the idea to them, and they say to me, but where are the picture of the jeans? And I said, no, 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 we all know what a pair of jeans looks like. I want to emphasise these are black and they have an attitude. Went, but no, but John, I, I, you've got to show the jeans. And I said, no, 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 people understand a pair of jeans. I just want to emphasise black and what that means. You're going against the flock, the herd, the sheep, the cow, you know. And they went, oh, no, oh, God, this is terrible. And they, they were going, oh, we've hired this new agency and they're all a bunch of <laughs> lunatics and, oh, Jesus, they won't even put a pair of Levi, a pair of a product into the ad and we've got these posters running. And, and anyway, time was going on and, 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 you know, you had to print the posters. And literally we got to the point where we were backwards and forwards and they ran out of time and they went, oh, God, all right, we better go with it. And anyway, they printed it up, posted it and... It got a huge response. And one of the things that happened is it's still family-owned, Levi's, and uh, the great-grandson of the uh, owner of Levi's saw the poster and had it framed and put in his office. And he said, this is what this company should always be about. Wow. So back here, yes. the client went, this has been a huge success. And they gave me a black sheep as a gift for saying, thank you for being so 
belligerent and not belligerent, but, <laughs> yes, you know, but awkward and, yes, you know, wouldn't change. Standing by that. your idea. And so that then became... So we it sits in my office to this day. I'm no longer at BBH, but, you know, it still sits there. We had this black sheep and it became... We called him... We referred to the sheep as Zag. So that was like 1982. 1995, we've moved to these new offices in Kingley Street and we're renovating them and doing them all up and we want to put a sign up outside BBH and I want a big sign up BBH and the architect said, oh no, I'm sorry, planning regulations, you can't put your name outside. You can put your logo. You've got a logo, haven't you? And Nigel and I were in this meeting. <laughs> Logo. Now, of course, we haven't got a logo. We're an advertising agency. We don't have a logo. You know, stupid thing that you kind of say. And we were sort of in, in the meeting and it was, I can always remember it. It was late, fairly late at night and, and the architect went away scratching his head thinking these people are mad. They haven't got a logo. And Nigel and I were walking down the stairs and I remember we both turned to each other and we said, well, we have really. We always refer to the black sheep. That's our logo. Right. So we caught up with him and said, it's a black sheep, put it up outside. And that's how it was. <laughs> but the point about that, and there's a creative point here, yes. is that your work does your talking. We hadn't sat down and said, let's invent a logo. What do we want to do? We let the work inform our decision. Mm. And our work became the guide to being the logo. So what we were was what? we put up mm. and it was the work that made that happen so it's a great lesson there because you know some people would you know say oh you know put a flash of lightning up or something like that but you spark with ideas or something but no it was that it came through what we had done I think this sagging as you call it <clears throat> is pure creativity or as Apple says you know think differently um I remember not in high street we used to say be less ordinary and that mm. became part of our culture from the products that we sold such as Brussels sprouts made of chocolate or giant champagne corks that were stalls mm. or bunches of balloons that were beautiful ceiling lights and we would encourage everyone to choose a life less ordinary from the teams to the partners and it's my favourite sentiment to live by, this sort of less ordinary, to push things forward to help change the world for the better. Now at Hoddy Co, I actually call this bringing colour to grey, making the world more different, more colourful, mm. more unique, especially the business world. But so coming into this business world, there are lots of small businesses who listen to this podcast or people dreaming of being entrepreneurs or creative entrepreneurs. And you've helped to found three successful businesses from doing exactly what you love. What would be your advice for anyone starting out today, wanting to start a business from what they passionately are about? Well, I, th I think the first thing, and, and, and you've talked about there, it's so important, is be different. The only reason why we have a number of car brands is that one's different from the other. If they're all the same, what's the point in having them all? And people forget that. And you've got to remember, the world is going to try and make you all the same. You've got to fight that. You've got to fight that sense of, oh, that's different, as though it's a criticism. No, that's, that's a great compliment. But the world looks upon it as a problem. Tell me, can I just stop it? Why does the world do that? Why do we become cookie cutters of ourselves or corporate businesses, even though they start differently, let's say, yes? Why, I've, I normally call it like a moth to a flame. It's like they're drawn to become clones. Well, I think... There are many reasons for it. I think there is an, a natural instinct in people in not to put your head above the parapet. Yeah. You know, be part vulnerable. of the crowd. You know, oh, why do that? I'm going to be vulnerable if I do that. And I think often what happens with 
a lot of businesses that they're started by very entrepreneurial people. They're successful, they grow, and all of a sudden they're now run by process people. Consequently, they stop being different because they see different as dangerous, whereas yes. different is the way you sustain your kind of relevance to the audience you're in. And that's a huge problem. But the first thing is that you end up kind of, you know, when you're starting a business, you know, if you're starting a coffee shop, you know, people cop copy other coffee shops. Well, why do that? Yeah. They're all out there. Do one that's very, very different. Do one yeah. that stands out, that has values that you want to extol. So that's the first thing to do. You must think about difference because otherwise there's no point in being there. And the second thing you've got to do is do something you genuinely love. Because it doesn't mean that you're going to succeed, but at least you'll enjoy doing it. I talk about enthusiasm, and enthusiasm in business is very, very important. There's a friend of mine, he's a poet, and he's a bit religious, and we always have this, I'm not at all, and he's very He's interesting about it. And he said, well, you know, and I said, oh, Philip, stop talking about God. I'm not in the slightest bit interested. And he said, no, but John, God is just energy. Energy. Mm. That's why people are attracted to God. And that's actually why religious pictures all have light coming out of them. It's energy. That's all it is. So that's why people get attracted to it. And he said, and that's why enthusiasm is so important. And he said, do you know the etymology of the word enthusiasm? And I went, mm, no. And he said, it comes from the Greek and it means to be with God. Mm. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that so fantastic? So enthusiasm, and you can't be enthusiastic about something unless you really love it. So yeah. certainly do something you love. Certainly, it doesn't mean to say it's going to be a success. Yeah, yeah. And make it different. But at least you'll attract people. And that's, you know, three quarters of the problem solved. Yes, People yes. have noticed me. You know, you can't buy something unless you can remember it. We've had many conversations about how we want to take the bullshit out of business, John, <clears throat> how we should demystify it, make it much more accessible for everyone to start a business, because it can seem a very scary prospect, especially when you feel you have to do things such as writing a business plan. I love your line when you tell people not to worry. You say Picasso never had a business plan. He just loved to paint. You believe in that still? Very much so. I mean, I think... You know, business plans are bullshit. I mean, you just write them. I mean, I could write 10 in the next 15 minutes. You know, I'm going to do that, going to do it. So don't worry about it. And as I say, you're quite right. You know, I, I've said this before, you know, Picasso didn't have a business plan. And yet his value today is almost, I would say, in the billions because he went out and challenged and he did things differently and he prepared to change. You know, he was daring in what he did and he didn't try and be like everybody else. You know, it doesn't mean to say everybody's going to be a Picasso. But, you know, remember that lesson. And touching on brands, and I'd love you to talk about this. So I'm sitting with the ultimate brand guru. Who would you say is the best brand out there? And <laughs> what would you learn from it? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, this is a, a story. I was, I was in America and I was on a panel and uh, it was an advertising conference and somebody from the audience said to the panel at the end of it, there were questions and said, would the panel tell me who they think the greatest brand is? My American colleagues went before me. I was, you know, recently now in the States and they talked about, 
you know, somebody I think mentioned Coca-Cola, you know, it was a brilliant brand in the sense of it was just sugared water, but, you know, carbonated sugared water, and they built this amazing brand. Somebody else talked about um, Nike, somebody else at that time uh, were beginning to talk about Apple. Anyway, they came to me and I said, no, I, I disagree with all of those. Um, I, I don't think you know, any of those are the great, but I think the greatest brand ever that teaches you everything that you want to know about marketing is the Catholic Church. Now, there was a kind of slight... I can imagine. You know, intake <laughs> yeah, of breath yeah. here in, you know, a very religious place say? in America. And, uh, but I realised I'm in it now. I've just yeah. got to keep going. You know, if I'm, you know yeah. I usually mouth off about something. And I said, look, first of all, the world's greatest logo, brilliant logo, recognised throughout the world. Fantastic. It was a brand that immediately went through the line straight away, built the churches on the sign of the cross through the line marketing, immediately went global. None of this kind of I'm just going to be in one place in March. Seven day opening, none of that closing. What close? What are you talking about? Seven day opening, definitely. Um, diversified christenings, weddings, funerals, did the whole thing. And of course, location, location, location. Center of the church, center of the city, center of the town, center of the village, biggest building, logo on the top. You knew exactly what you were going for. And of course, genius. Work with the greatest artists, greatest painters. You know, when Nike launched Just Do It, they used, I think, John Lennon. Well, you know, come on, Catholic Church had Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. <laughs> they had them all, you know. They had the lot. They were with, you know, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. They, they you know, give us all this stuff. And, um, of course, what were they selling? Belief. Couldn't see the product. Belief. It's a very modern product in the sense of kind of yes. today we're selling things you can't see. I can't see Vodafone. I, it's vibrating air. I can't see Google, so I look it up. Facebook, it's just, you know, it's there. I can't see it. I can't physically touch it. They're selling belief in their product. Well, the Catholic Church, that was an incredibly early concept. And, you know, you had to say, 2,000 years later, few problems. They've got, a, you know, a couple of issues that they should be resolving, but still going. So the, the world's greatest brand. Everything you want to know about, about yeah. branding and where it goes wrong. Bit of that yeah. bit of competition too. The Protestants yeah. came along, yeah. the Calvinists, yeah. and the, yeah. but they saw them all off. You know, don't worry about that. <laughs> they were, you know, confident in what they were doing. So that the world's greatest brand. Oh, it's just the best answer, really. <laughs> and building a brand, then, what are the fundamentals to what you would say building an iconic brand? Well, it's very interesting. You can define a brand. There, there are many definitions of a brand. Of course, at the at the core of a brand is trust. I've got to be able to trust you, which is, again, why the church may be in a bit of trouble because we can't trust it for all sorts of reasons that we know about. So at the core of it is trust. Now, somebody gave a wonderful definition of a brand, which was um, it is the most valuable piece of real estate in the world, a corner of somebody's mind. And I think that's a Gosh, wonderful yes. definition. But beyond that, and this goes back to my point about the Catholic Church, I think great brands aren't building a product, they're building a movement. You're mm. trying to change the world. Mm. So Apple, mm. as a brand, is trying to change the way you gain information. Mm. Google is trying to give you access to more things. They're not just an information, not in the Encyclopedia Britannica, they're Google. 
They're trying mm. to change the world. And great, you know, Nike is trying to change the way you think about exercise. It's more than just a product. It's mm. more than a brand. The depth. It's a movement. Mm. And that's what a great brand is. It's nice, so nice chatting to someone who's been in this business for over 50 years, who deeply knows the importance of brand and the retail value of brand, how priceless it is for businesses, how fragile though it is, and it needs to be cared and nurtured. Whoever's got that wonderful job and that honour of holding the brand, mm. you know, the power of really what you're holding. So moving on to my favourite subject, creativity, and it's your mastermind specialist subject, <laughs> it has to be. One of my most favourite books of all time is your book, Hegarty on Creativity, There Are No Rules. Could you tell me a little about why you wrote this and maybe some of your philosophies from the book? Well, um, I wrote a book on advertising and then they, they said, we'd love you to do another book. And I, and I did say, actually, you seem to have forgotten I'm an art director, not a writer. You know, I've spent my life taking words out, not putting them in. And they said, no, John, we'd love you to do another one. So I went, well, actually, I would like to do one on creativity because we talk about the creative economy. We talk about this new world of creativity that, that we're all approaching. But nobody actually talks about creativity as a subject, you know, Define it. What is it? How does it mm. work? And so I thought, you know, 50 provocations done in a sort of humorous way with little silly drawings that I do would make a great book. And that's what I did. So it was really me, in a, in a way, trying as a creative practitioner, because we're all creative, by the way. I loathe that phrase, creative people. It, it, it sounds as though you're some mm. alien race that's descended <laughs> the creative people here oh my god they'll be coming around having mad ideas and we'll all go crazy you know we're all creative it's just some of us are now living by doing it like we can all sing you know mm -hmm. if you've heard me sing you'll realize why i never pursued a career as a singer but i can sing you know so it was important that i i, I felt that this was written but to do it in a sort of humorous way it was one defined creativity uh, talk about different types of creative people, how you run a creative company. But the, and the book really isn't for just people in advertising. It's if you want to be a yeah, painter, if you want absolutely. to be a film director, if you want to be a whatever, you know, fashion designer. Hopefully it will help, help you. And I love the line for the book. Creativity touches all of our lives in thousands of different ways, from the clothes we buy to the buildings we live in, from the food we eat to the cars we drive. Creativity invents, perfects and defines our world. It explains and entertains us. There are many ways of defining creativity, but the one I like best is the expression of self. It's such a good summary of creativity, as so many people tell me that they are not creative, but everyone, as you just said can be creative in different ways growing up we are encouraged to be creative reaching for the crayons but then when we're growing up we're taught to lose that and it seemed to be you know you're either as you said in the creative alien bunch of people or you're not but your philosophy as you said is for everyone to be creative mm. and something that I'm trying to encourage <clears throat> is mm. this idea that if you do not have creativity at the literal heart, mm. the pumping heart of your business or your idea, it's going to go wrong. Is As you said, it's not just for the creative department or the couple of people who bring this to the table. You must have seen so many businesses going through your hands. Am I right in thinking that 
where you've seen it work is where they feel that they are a creative brand, that the people that work there are still creative. It's not just a department. I, I think the thing that creativity teaches you is to engage entertain, constantly question. Uh, and if you are doing those things, then I think as a business, you have a good chance of continuing your success. It's when you look at your business as purely a process, then you begin to fail. And of course, what creativity is, isn't a process. It's it's chaos. You know, I, yeah. I always laughed, you know, when I was at the agency and, and clients would come in and they'd want to be how did, how did your agency work? And, and what we used to do is we used to sort of say, oh, we do this. We have a, <laughs> establish a, a, a planning session and we set up the problem and we write a brief and the strategy and then the creative people take that over and they create a piece of work on that strategy. We didn't dare say, it's fucking chaos, mate. It, it, you know, I mean, because they didn't want to hear that. No, we if I not said that, you the big box they, they, to they, run they, around like headless chickens. Yeah, they run for the door. So you created this sense of, Kind of, there's a, oh, it's an absolute process, you know, that's why you do it. Yeah. But in the reality, of course, there's an element of process to it. But in, in it, what you're doing is setting people free. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I want you to come back with an idea that's really going to frighten me, change the way I feel, change the way I think, excite me, make me feel this could be encouraging, this could be dangerous, it could be involving or whatever, you know. Yeah. But just some, surprise yeah. me. Yeah. And that's what you're trying to do with creativity surprise me. And then we can have a conversation about yeah. is it right or is it wrong. So it's very important that you bed that into your company if, that is, you want your company to go on succeeding. And you can see, you know, you know, companies that have not done that have become processed. I always use the example of, you know, Kodak, uh, 2012 files for bankruptcy. Uh, the same year, Instagram is sold to Facebook for over a billion dollars. Mm. And you go... Well, wait a minute, you were both yeah. in the imaging business. Yeah. The trouble is Kodak thought they were in the film business. They had become a process. I'm trying to sell you film. And you go, yeah, I know, but what you're really selling me yeah. are memories. You're selling me, you know, images. And Instagram understood this. Tell me how you boost creativity. Because when you're running your own business or you're building your dream, sometimes, you know, you know, it's hard work, as you know. Yeah. How do you keep that creative buzz going? What would you say to someone as a tip to just have that creative boost? Well, I think, you know, one of the great things in any creative pursuit is to go and look at other great work. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I was at art school, you know, you were told, go to the best galleries you can see, go and see the work of those people. You will be inspired. So as a as a business person, you don't necessarily have to go to a gallery, but constantly seek out who's doing it brilliantly. And I think I talk about this so much about, you know, if you if you read shit, you'll think shit, you'll create shit. So look at great stuff. Mm. Look at what other people are doing that's really interesting mm. and you'll learn from it. Mm. That's the way you're creative. Mm. That's the way you go on being creative. So you're challenging yourself all the time. And I think great creative people are constantly challenging themselves. You know, can I write a better song? Can I, can I make a better movie? Can I write a better book? Can I, you know, you're constantly they never doing rest. that. Never They're not rest. trying to say, I'd like to write the same book I wrote yesterday. Oh, God, I, re- I wrote that yesterday. I want to write a different one today. So that's what you've got to do. And I think a business should be doing the same thing. How can I make this business better? What can I do? And lastly, your career spans 55 years now. It's um, embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah. No, Somebody it's, said to it's, me, it's, six, it's six decades, rem- and I thought, 
Jesus Christ. It's remarkable. And, you know, you continue to be a genius in this world. And I know, like me, you don't believe in retiring. But over the course of your career, you've witnessed an incredible shift from the sort of traditional world of advertising, if you could call it that, and everything being done by hand and no social media and digital technology, influencer age that we're now living in. What are the notice shifts that you feel have really helped us or hindered that sort of the world of advertising, that world of communication? Mm. Well, I constantly say to people, you know, principles remain, practices change. But I'm a sort of firm believer in fundamentally we still need a brilliant idea. That idea needs to be daring, needs to be different, needs to capture people's imagination, needs to be something that elevates the brand out of the ordinary into culture. And, you know, you've still got to take risks. Mm. You know, the, the, the danger today is that we think we've de-risked everything. Yes. That's the big danger. That's the myth that the digital companies are trying to sell you. They're trying to sell you the idea that you don't have to take risks anymore. Hey, you know, you can Just talk to the audience, and, well, yep. pay this and I can talk to the yep. people who you who really exactly. need to buy your we'll product, buy your who product. buy your yep. product and all of those things. And, of course, that's absolute, you know, to a certain extent there's a truth in that. But ultimately it's a nonsense because what a brand needs is fame mm. and fame adds value to a product. So, you know, I talked about Marmite earlier on. The fact that I will never, ever eat Marmite, I can't bear the smell of it or anything, (laughs) but I know about it adds value to it. Mm -hmm. So if the advertising decided that John doesn't like Marmite, I wouldn't be adding value to that brand. And so it's fundamentally important people understand that. And it's a very, you know, it's where we we get back to that fame and celebrity thing. You know, people often say, oh, fame, but aren't we living in a fame culture? And you say, no, 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 we're living in a celebrity culture. Fame is defined as public renown, great esteem. What brand does not want that? And you gain that mm. by broadcasting, mm. not just narrow casting, by broadcasting. And this is my another religious analogy. And I always say, <laughs> you know, when, when, you know, Jesus stood on the mount He got up and it says in the Bible, he preached to the masses. It doesn't say in the Bible, uh, Jesus got up on the mount and he said, I'm just talking to 18 to 24 year olds with a disposable income of 24 shekels a week. He went, no, the masses. And do you know what? I'm back to that thing about the church again. It's still going. So you've you've got to sort of preach to the masses in some shape or form at some point. My best example of it is also if I say to you Rolls Royce, I would never in a million years buy a Rolls Royce. Don't know if you will, don't know who else would, but we know about it. We know that it stands for luxury. We know that it stands for brilliant manufacturing. And that adds value to that brand, even though I'm not going to buy it. So I'm still part of their audience. That's the important thing to, to, to understand. And that's what broadcast gives you that narrowcast doesn't. Oh, I'm learning so much just sitting here because... You know, it it takes, you know, when everyone that's going to hear you saying that, we are absolutely right now sitting in an age where 
everyone thinks that we can de-risk the whole lot. We, If we just raise that money and we just spend it in the right Google AdWords hmm. and we do the right demographic, you know, and we break up our audiences, but we only tell this audience one thing and only that audience the other thing. And it makes you realise how businesses can lose their creativity because hmm. we're so infatuated by getting it right and pound hmm. on pound spending. And what is that return on that pound? Hmm. That we forget that, you know, the greatest brands were not governed by the shackles that sort of today people are petrified. They're petrified to put that step out, you know. And when you look back to some of the work that you're talking about, you look at the Guinness ads, you look at all these sort of things. What I don't see today in advertising, unfortunately, I I see very few things that move me, that stir me up, that... Yeah. Just empathetically, emotionally grab hold of my heart and, and make me question something. Well, part of advertising's task and a brand's task is conquest. You know, we, yes. we, we don't ultimately know where our market is. We don't maybe completely understand where it is. So part of the job is to go out and conquer. You know, that's yes. what we did. Yeah. We went out and conquered, hopefully in a nice way. but. Yeah. And that's partly what broadcasting is doing. It's, and even if you're not going to buy the product, you knowing about it adds value to that. And where are we today? We're in this wonderful building in Soho. And, you know, a few years ago, I was here quite a few times and talking about your amazing work that you're now with your business partner, Tom Teichman. Indeed. Tell me about it. Well, we're here at uh, 62 Dean Street. We call it The Garage. Uh, Why The Garage? Uh, We're what we call an early stage investment company. We help young entrepreneurs get their business idea up off the ground. We help get them finance and we help guide them through establishing their business. And the thing, our mantra here is, provocatively, is don't start a business, build a brand. Because whatever business idea you have, somebody will copy it. They'll copy the technology. They'll copy the idea. What they can't copy is the brand because that's where value will reside. So invest in the brand. Invest in building that brand. So, you know, the the simplest example of that is how much do you think Pepsi Cola is versus Coca-Cola? Well, we all know that Coca-Cola is worth about 20 times what Pepsi is. They built a brand that people admire and people love. So that's what we encourage people to do here. We get their businesses up off the ground and encourage them to think about the brand. What do you stand for? What are you trying to change? What are you, what are you bringing people? How different are you? Will you be recognized in the marketplace? How do you talk about yourself? And again, don't start a business, build a movement. And some of the businesses that you're building a movement with? Oh, and a huge number of them. Simba in, in uh, mattresses, box mattresses. Uh, Popsa, where you can download photographs and get a book from it. We're trying to change the way people engage with doctors through Doctify. Um, how you can get a suit made in two weeks with the drop. Um, so we stop wasting huge amounts in, in fashion wastage. Many, many businesses. We're, we're quite agnostic as far as the businesses we go for. We just want them to be interesting, relevant to today. And have they got a group of founders that really, really want to change the way people feel or think? I could speak all day to you, John, but at the end of my interviews, I use the analogy that sort of running your own business and to people listening, small businesses, is like this 
crazy epic roller coaster with the black mm. sheep in your carriage firmly sitting there what would you say has been one of your biggest lows could you badge a point that has really rocked you do you know it i'm going to be really really boring here i haven't really i always say i'm cursed as an optimist or archbishop tutu says i'm a prisoner of optimism which i think is a much better way of describing it of course i've had ups and downs and things like that but the trouble is if you focus on the downs you know people say to me about creativity do you learn from your mistakes and i say absolutely not there is absolutely no point in even thinking about your mistakes there is no such thing as failure because in the creative world, when you're trying to create and make an idea, you're trying to do something very different. And as I said, it's not like yesterday's idea. So the fact that I might have done something yesterday that didn't work, how does that impact on today? All it will do is it will impose on me a fear for being different. So I'll suddenly go, oh my God, you know, oh, I did that didn't work yesterday. I better, I better be, I better be more cautious. So in a way, it, I'm sure if you're a research scientist or whatever it might be, Failure is very, very important to understand and why things fail. But if you're in a creative area, it's a complete waste of time. I've just got to go on being daring. Mm. And that's what you've got to do. And then if you are this eternal optimist, so you have mm. had lots of highs, Yeah. give me a, a moment that comes top of your mind. I think actually one of the great highs was when I walked in to see the final cut on Laundrette. Because it's very interesting when you write a script, and this is why I love film, and William Goldman writes about this in his book, The Great Screenwriter, and he says, in Hollywood, nobody knows. And you write a script and you go, this is it, I'm going to do that, I'm going to walk in there, but you don't know. It's a script, it's a piece of paper. I'm now going to convert this piece of paper into action. And you just don't know. You really, really don't know. You can put all the things together. You can say, well, that's a great piece of music. That's really good. Then, But it could be a complete flop. And so when you go to see the first cut, you know, there's a lovely thing they say, because you shoot whatever you're making, and then you see the rushes or the dailies, as they call them in America. And there's a great line. They say, laugh at the rushes, cry at the cut. <laughs> so if you laugh at the rushes, that will blind me. So you walk in to see the cut, see this thing assembled. And sometimes you go, oh, my God, it's a crock of shit. What am I going to do? How do I save this now? And you go there. I walked in. And you always do this when, you, when you're editing. You, you, you walk in, you go in to see it, and you say to the editor, you look at the editor and you, you kind of go. You try and. You're trying to get. A, is it good? Is it good? Is it good? Is it good? Without actually yeah. looking a bit desperate. And I remember the editor looked at me and he just smiled. And. We played it and it took my breath away. Mm. And I just wow. thought, this is genius. And, and that's, that's the it. magic. Yeah. And I, I, in my book on advertising, I talk about turning intelligence into magic. And that was that magical moment. That oh, it was just uh, phenomenal. Yeah, Ken, I can feel it from you. I can feel it. And something else I've started to ask my guests is, who could you personally recommend for me to interview on this podcast? Someone that has inspired you? I'd recommend Dan Sujik, who is the director of the Design Museum. And he's just wonderful. He's just put on the exhibition of the Stanley Kubrick exhibition, which I must say, everybody out there, go 
and see the Stanley Kubrick exhibition at the Design Museum. It is absolutely fantastic. Oh. But, uh, but Dayan is the person I would say, go and interview Dayan. He's wonderful. Thank you. Well, John, thank you so much. I, As I said, I could just spend so much time here. Your enthusiasm, your lust for life, your ability to see the world differently is just so inspiring. Well, and I know I'm going to walk off with this huge spring on my step as I do each time. Thank you for sharing your stories, your wisdom, your advice today. I know it's going to help so many small businesses, entrepreneurs, people fearing things, not being told that it's about systems and it's about business plans. And actually, it's probably about everything their soul's screaming out about, that they need to zag They've got to zag. And this is the point in the podcast where I turn over to you. I yep. asked you to write a letter to your younger self. But before you start, I just want to deeply thank you, John. You, oh, my pleasure. You well, it's been wonderful. Are, you're personally yeah. a complete hero to me. Well, that's wonderful. Holly, that's very, very kind. And I've said quite a bit of this through the, uh, the interview, but I'm going to, this is the letter um, I should have written to myself when I was starting out. So it says, John, you're starting your career working in the creative industry, advertising. It's a career that is famously unstable. So here's some advice. The most important thing to remember is most creative careers last for 10 years. 10 years when you produce your great work. Then, if you're lucky, to be in an industry where you can go on repeating your creative output for the rest of your working life, you'll be okay. But most of us aren't. Mick Jagger can go on singing Satisfaction 50 or so years after he wrote it with Keith Richards, and still thousands of people will pay to see them perform it. But in a lot of other creative careers, you have to come in every day and have a new idea. And that idea can't be like yesterday's idea. Fashion designers, filmmakers, advertising art directors. In these professions, you can't repeat what you created 50 years ago. You'd have to come in every day and have something that's going to startle people, that's going to surprise them. It's going to be daring. It's going to be different. So the question is, how do you turn a 10-year career into a 50, 20, 30-year career? Now, the first thing to remember is don't chase the money. Chase the opportunity. Yours is a career you've got to constantly invest in. Remember, money is a tool, not a philosophy. Only work with great people. That's why great people congregate with each other. They've learned genius rubs off. Walking around, please take off the headphones and absorb what's going on around you. It will be feeding your creative spirit and your imagination and providing inspiration. And that, by the way, comes free. Don't, whatever you do, become a cynic. Cynicism destroys creativity. You've got to believe what you're going to be doing is outstanding, it's going to be accepted, it's going to be bought by whoever you're doing it for. If you give up on that, you'll begin to lose faith and doing what is not great. Enthusiasm is essential to the creative spirit. Something else, read things other creative people don't read. It will open you up to new ideas. And by the way, you'll be the only creative person doing so. Of course, go to the latest exhibitions, see the most up-to-date movies and visit the best galleries but also read The Economist. Why? That's what I do. It keeps me connected to the outside world and different ways of thinking. It stimulates my imagination and hands me at an advantage. It's a competitive world out there. And of course, other people 
creative people aren't reading The Economist, so I have an advantage. And of course, only read good stuff. Why? Because if you read shit, you'll think shit, you'll create shit. Good things rub off. And lastly, have fun. Hopefully, you're going to be doing this for a very long time. If you enjoy what you're doing, you'll do it better. You won't be working, you'll be living. Best of luck. <laughs> John, thank you. So pleasure, John, pleasure. So John Hecate, this is why you're a sir and why I feel emotional, because every time I see you, you encapsulate everything I believe and you can go out into the world and you, the world tells you other things. But when I'm with you, I know the truth and um, it's a really beautiful thing that you do. And we're going to hang on every single word. So oh. thank you, dear John. Holly, thank you very much. Thank and you. Best of luck to everybody out there. Thank you. Big hugs, big kisses. Oh. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode with Sir John Hegarty, I'd love to suggest listening to my conversation with brand guru, Rita Clifton, CBE, founder of BrandCap. You can find any of my past episodes by searching wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.